you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter. We are there again this week. The last two weeks we've been in this marvelous chapter in which Jesus really summarizes the Gospel for us. He summarizes it from God's perspective to help us to understand the Gospel. And our text this morning is chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, down through verse 29. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time... The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would equip us to not only understand your word, but to take it to heart, to be changed by it, to be eager to share it with others. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen. Let me ask you, what is the gospel? Well, it is good news. I think we can agree on that. But what is that news that is good? How can we receive the blessings of salvation? And even more, how can we keep salvation? Do we have to go through life careful to make sure that God will not be angry with us? That God will not take away our salvation from us? Here in our text, Jesus teaches us that salvation belongs to the Lord from beginning to end. Jesus saves his people. He leads them, and He keeps them to the very end. And that is good news. 
And so this morning, I would like us to see three things from our text as Jesus speaks to us about the good news of the gospel. The very first thing that we will notice is the spiritual inability of mankind. That we are spiritually unable. But the second thing that we will see is the sovereign grace of God. The sovereign grace of God overcomes our spiritual inability. And then the third thing that we see is the divine preservation of God for His people. Spiritual inability, sovereign grace, and divine preservation. Let's begin then by looking at spiritual inability. We see this in the opening of our text in the hostility that comes to Jesus. We have to remember that there are many who hear the words of Jesus and don't want to. They don't want Jesus. They don't want his teaching. They don't want his truth. This is a challenge for us sometimes because we open up the gospel and we're eager to hear what Jesus has to say. And we just assume everyone else would be also. But that's not the case. Here, as we begin our text, Jesus has healed a blind man. And he has given comforting words about how he lays down his life for the sheep. And the response to this is usual. It's immediate opposition. There's no break. There's no pause. We see this in verse 20. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why should we listen to him? Now, note what John tells us. There are many here hearing Jesus, and their response to the good news, to the blessings of the gospel, is to say that Jesus is crazy and he's possessed. You can't say anything worse at this juncture. And even those who aren't offended by what Jesus has been teaching and doing... They aren't sure what to make of Jesus. So there are a few others who speak up in verse 21. Others say, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And so we have the many who are opposed, and we have a few who say, we're not really sure what to make of him. You know, he did heal this man. Maybe there's something good involved here. They're not exactly on board with Jesus. They're asking questions. And then in verse 22, John takes us to a new scene. We've seen this before. John transitions in time and in scene by using a phrase like he does in the beginning of verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. The Feast of Dedication was during our month of December. And so previously, Jesus was in Jerusalem in the fall at other festivals, preaching and teaching. And so now John is hinting to us, triggering to us, that several months have gone by. This feast of dedication, you might know by another name. It's called now Hanukkah. And this was not a biblically ordained feast. It was a new extra-biblical feast. Not that it was unbiblical, but it came about because in the 2nd century B.C., the Jews were under the authority 
of a Greek tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was trying to wipe out the Jews' faith. And what he did was he went into the temple and he desecrated the temple. He had a pig slaughtered on the altar. He forbade the priests from reading the scriptures and sharing the scriptures. And he did all he could to wipe out the faith of the Jews. But there came a man who rose up named Judas. Judas Maccabeus. Because even in the days of before Christ, men had nicknames. He was Judas the Hammer. That's what Maccabeus means. And he was called the Hammer because he struck a blow for Jewish freedom. And he destroyed the forces of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he freed the Jewish people. And they restored the temple. And they rededicated it to the worship of God. And so they then had this feast celebrated that year. And every year thereafter, a feast of dedication. Now Jesus is still publicly teaching here at this time. But you'll see that John tells us it's in the winter, it's in December. You would understand that because Hanukkah occurs in December in our calendars. It's cold, even in Texas. And so Jesus is not out in the temple outer courts. He's inside the temple in a covered area. The colonnade is like a kind of porch, if you will. And so he's protected in that area. And there are Jews who are gathered around him. We see in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, this is not a peaceful gathering of students around a teacher. This is not what you might picture by reading the words gathered around him. You might think of a cocktail party or a picnic or some other get-together when someone is speaking and kind of holding court and everyone comes around because they want to hear. They want to hear about their knowledge of football or of government or of finance or, or something, cars. They want to catch everything that the person says. That's not what's being done here. The word here for gathered is a military term. It's often translated encircled or surrounded or even besieged. And you are meant to get that connotation. They are around Jesus, but they are not friendly. They are ready to pounce. They are surrounding him. They're pushing in. They're hanging on his words to try to find something to use against him. And the question that they ask actually leads us to see their hostility. They're not asking this question for information. We might freely translate it something like this. How long will you keep us hostage? How long will you annoy us? Be direct with us. Give us an answer. Because their intent is to get Jesus to make a clear statement that he is the Christ so that that can be used against him in a trial. Now, this makes sense, doesn't it? Because this is exactly what they will do a few months from now, a few chapters from now in John. That's what they're looking for. It is an insincere question that is designed to harm Jesus. I want you to learn from that. Not all questions about the faith are honest and sincere. 
often they are means of attack or of denial. Someone may be constantly asking questions because they don't want to be confronted with the truth. They don't want to accept the truth of God's word. They want to find a loophole. They want to find a way around it. It's not sincere. They don't need more information. But Jesus says, well, I've already answered. Now, this may come as a bit of a surprise to us. I know it was a surprise to the Jews. Because Jesus had not come out publicly and said, I am the Messiah. You could take some time this afternoon and read quickly through the first nine chapters of John. You will not find Jesus saying, I am the Messiah. Why not? Well, I think it's because the Jews had a certain view of the Messiah. The Messiah was to be a military liberator. He was to throw off the yoke of oppression of the Romans, to destroy their armies, to set up Israel as a free country once again, where they would lead themselves. Their view of the Messiah was of a secular military leader, someone who would give them freedom now. They weren't thinking eternally. And Jesus was not the Messiah they were looking for. That should be clear already from the Gospel of John, that Jesus did not come primarily to provide political freedom. No, he came to provide freedom from sin and from guilt and shame. He came not to liberate them from the oppression of a foreign power, but to liberate mankind from sin and guilt. But at the same time, it's not as if Jesus was reluctant to talk about who he was. You may recall he has taught often about himself being the Son of God. He has used the imagery from Daniel about the Son of Man, that divine being with all power. And he's made several bold statements. I am, Jesus has says, hearkening back to the book of Exodus and the divine name of God. And he had certainly performed miracles, miracles that showed he had power over nature, over sickness, and over disease. So Jesus' answer to them in verse 25 is exactly what they ask for. They say, tell us plainly. And he answers plainly, that is, boldly. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. He says, you should have been listening. I've told you. I've shown you. But then Jesus makes a statement that is very important. It's in verse 26. He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now you may have read this verse before. You may have been familiar with this verse before. You may have even heard me read it and think you understand this verse. But I want you to listen again closely as I read it again. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He tells them why they do not believe. Why they keep asking instead of believing. And he tells them they are not believing because they are not from among his sheep. Now, what we expect is Jesus to say the exact opposite. Because you do not believe, you are not among my sheep. 
But look at the text again. It's a per perfectly good translation. You can, again, go home, get on your phone, look at five or six other translations. It's the exact same translation. That's difficult for us. Because we think, isn't it believing that makes us belong to Jesus? Don't we get to Jesus through our faith? Isn't it our choice of Jesus that gets us to Jesus? That seems to be what makes all the difference. It's faith that brings us to Jesus. But Jesus says that unbelief is not the cause of being separated from God. It's the result of being separated from God. We are not separated from God because we do not believe. It is because we are separated from God that we do not believe. It is a mark and sign of our separation from God that we do not believe the words of Jesus. And that is who we are. And we can tell the difference between those who are sheep and those who are not in this way. Those who are not Jesus' sheep do not believe. They do not hear his voice. He does not know them. Now, this does not excuse unbelief. It actually indicts. It charges unbelief. Because what it tells us is there is no neutral ground. There is not a group of people who believe Jesus and a group of people who reject Jesus and then in theory a large group of neutral people who are just kind of hanging out there don't know what to do with Jesus. No, Jesus says you either believe me or you don't because you're either my sheep or you're not. All of the world is divided into these two groups. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't say here now, I understand your need for more evidence. I understand that you need some more explanation before you can come to a major life decision. No, that's not what he says. He's saying that your unbelief is a sign that you do not belong to me, that you are lost. Their unbelief is not a surprise to Jesus. It's expected. Now, I want you to think about that when you hear the gospel. Because you can't stand in judgment of Jesus. You can't ride the fence. You must believe or your unbelief testifies against you that you don't belong to Jesus. Well, that then brings us to a second matter. What does make the difference then? If belief is not the cause of the difference, what is? In other words... How can someone belong to Jesus? What brings them to Jesus? Now, you may have thought that was your job, that you had to bring faith to Jesus. You had to believe, and then you could belong to Jesus. You would bring your faith to Jesus, and he would accept that, and on that ground, you would belong to him. But when you think about it, that makes faith a work. It makes it something that we do. It makes us different from others. And Jesus wants us to see that our salvation depends upon God. 
not us. And so in verse 29, he makes a simple and bold statement about how someone becomes his sheep. Look at verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. He tells us that God does it. That the Father gives a people to the Son. Salvation belongs with God. It begins with God, not us. We can't take credit for our salvation. It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're better. It's not because of what your family has done. It's not because you have the right opinions that you belong to Jesus. God saves us through the gift of faith. It's His sovereign grace. Our faith is the gift of God. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. We hear Jesus' voice because we have been made alive. The Holy Spirit has changed us. The truth is that God determined to save a people for himself. It was God's initiative. Nothing made him do it. There was nothing lovely or worthy in us to compel God to save a people. And like all of God's actions, it is a Trinitarian action. The Father chose a people for salvation. And he gives them to the Son. That's what Jesus tells us in verse 29. And the Son agrees to redeem them by his work. He agrees to perform the work of atonement, the work of redemption, that they might be saved. And the Spirit agrees to bring those people to Jesus, to give them new hearts, to create faith in them, so that they would believe. This is called the covenant of redemption. What we need to understand is that the most important covenant in the Bible is not something that we are a party to. It is a covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to save a people for himself. Salvation is a gift. It is free. There is nothing that you can do to earn it, not even to bring your faith. Either salvation is earned, and it's a reward, or it is a free gift, and it's nothing that we can claim. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 9, after 2, 8, he says, no one can boast. No one can boast because everyone has received the free gift. Now, you may be thinking now, well, is the pastor saying that faith isn't important? That I don't really need to believe? After all, pastor, you just told me that faith isn't what makes the difference. But I am telling you, along with the scriptures, that faith is important. You must believe. Jesus is charging the Jews who do not believe. He's saying that's proof that they're not his sheep. No one is saved without believing. But your salvation does not rest on your faith. It rests on God's grace in Christ. 
And again, just because God is the cause of your salvation does not mean faith is unimportant. Faith is essential. It is how we know we belong to Jesus. You can't belong to Jesus and not believe. Jesus says that in verse 26. So what does faith look like? What does it mean to receive God's gift of salvation? Jesus gives us some thoughts here, a definition, if you will, a description in our passage. The first thing that we would know about this faith is that it is receiving. Some theologians call this the faith of the hands. Salvation is a gift given by God and received by us. We don't do anything. We simply open our hands and receive the free gift of God. Faith does not reject the gift of God. It doesn't resent not being able to earn salvation. Faith takes the free gift of grace. And this is fundamental and foundational. Because all other so-called religions feed into man's desire to earn God's favor. Only true biblical Christianity says, I can't. I must receive. Do you believe that? Have you given up trying to earn God's favor? And just receive His gift? Another way that Jesus describes faith is by hearing. He says in verse 27, My sheep Hear my voice. Some theologians call this the faith of the ear. Faith is hearing Jesus' words. Jesus says that those who are not his do not hear his voice. They do not listen to his words. But his sheep do. They love his words. They are life itself to them. Where can you hear The voice of Jesus. Well, right here in your Bible. Do you want more of Jesus? Do you read your Bible to hear the voice of Jesus, your Savior? Because that's what faith is. Wanting to hear Jesus' words. And then Jesus goes on in verse 27 to say that his sheep follow me. Some call this the faith of the foot. That is, following after Jesus. Jesus says that his sheep follow him. Now this is where faith becomes very real. Because false faith is willing to say something so long as it doesn't change anything or cost anything. You could come to me and ask me any number of questions. And it wouldn't cost me anything to tell you. You could say... Pastor, I really need some help. Could you lend me some money? Pastor, could you come over and fix my computer? Pastor, could you come over? And I could say, sure. Now, what does that get you? As they say, that and five bucks now at Starbucks gets you a coffee. That's about it. It's the action that's necessary. It shows that the faith is real. That's why Jesus says his sheep follow him. True faith shows that you've been changed, that you belong to Jesus, that you are his sheep, that you follow him. Think about your life. Are you following Jesus? 
Do you obey His commands? Are you growing in grace? Do you want to be more and more like Jesus? Now, this is not about perfectionism. But faith is more than words. If you belong to Jesus, you will follow Him. You will go where He goes. You will do what He says. You will want to be more and more like Him. Well, Jesus tells us something else that we need to hear. Not only are we saved in spite of our inability, not only is salvation the sovereign gift of God, but Jesus tells us that salvation is a gift that can never be lost. He says this clearly in verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Notice what he says. I give eternal life. Salvation is the gift of God. It is a present gift. It is not a future gift. It doesn't depend on your performance. It is something Jesus gives to you and you possess now. I have kind of a rule with my children and their college classes. Maybe you have a similar thing. I say, Dad doesn't pay for C's. You're taking a class, you get an A or a B, Dad pays for it. You get a C or a D, you're on your own. So that gift is clearly dependent on performance. Because if you can't pull an A or a B, you're reaching into your bank account because dad's not coming up with it. Jesus' gift is nothing like that. Jesus doesn't say, I will save you if, or I will save you when. No, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. It's a present gift that you possess now. And if you have eternal life, how could you ever die? How could you ever be lost? It would make no sense at all if you already possess eternal life. That means you need to stop living like your relationship to Jesus could change. It can't. You are as loved by Jesus when you believe upon Him as you will ever be. There is nothing more that needs to be done. When you belong to Jesus, you have eternal life. You have the blessings of that abundant life now. That doesn't mean that you won't experience it more fully in glory. But it does mean there is nothing more to do. You have eternal life. And then Jesus says, they will never perish. And again, his language is very clear. He doesn't want us to misunderstand him. He doesn't want us to be in doubt. The language is never, which literally means to eternity and beyond. That is when you would perish. Never. And that is a promise from Jesus to you. In order for you to perish, in order for you to lose your salvation, Jesus would have to break his promise. He would have to cease to be who he is. Now, when we think about that, that is a game changer. Because your salvation doesn't depend, in, doesn't depend on you keeping a promise. But it depends on Jesus. And Jesus tells us why we are safe. 
why we will never perish in verses 28 and 29. He says, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's not just because of the promise that he makes to us. It's not just because of who he is. It's because he's actively preserving us, actively protecting us. Your salvation was not only begun by the work of Jesus, it is being finished by the work of Jesus. Paul puts it this way, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, remember when Paul wrote that. He was in jail. It was at the end of his ministry. Paul was a veteran of planting churches. He was a veteran of ministry. He was a veteran of following Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. And as sure as he was that Jesus began his salvation, I don't know that you could ever be more sure of a work than Jesus coming to Paul. Maybe you have, but I haven't been struck blind and heard the voice of Jesus from the sky asking me why I persecuted his church. That's something you don't forget. But Paul tells us that's exactly how certain he is that God in Christ is going to complete that work. He has no doubt at all. Jesus is not going to lose you. He's made this clear over and over again. You belong to Jesus. He will not forget you. Now, that happens to us, doesn't it? We forget things all the time. Even valuable things. We're not sure where they are. That's why they invented air tags. So that you could attach it to something valuable so that when, not if, when you lose it, when you forget it, you can find it again. But not Jesus. Jesus knows us. Jesus gathers us. Jesus protects us. And that comes to the last important point. No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. You see, we can be afraid because the world is a very scary place. You can see there are all kinds of studies which I'm sure you can understand from your own life that parents today do not let their children wander to the extent they did when I was a child. There's, there's a circumference in which parents will let their children walk. And today, the average is something like a house or two away. In my day, it would have been a broader neighborhood. You can go back a hundred years, and it's like a three-hour walk there and back. Why? Because we're afraid that someone will get our children, snatch our children, that we won't be able to protect our children. And, and that's what Jesus is telling us here. The word snatch means to take suddenly, to take by force, to drag someone away. And Jesus says, you are safe in his hand. He has you tight. No one can snatch you. Have you ever tried to pry open something out of a closed fist? Especially from someone who's big and strong, then you would see that it's nearly impossible to do that. Sometimes, if dad has his fist closed, you might see three or four kids try to get after the hand and each get after a finger. But you see, remember, this is not a weak human hand. 
This is the mighty, divine hand of Jesus. And it's as if Jesus knows we even need more assurance. He reminds us that the Father has us also. He says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The picture that we have is you are in Jesus' hand safe, and Jesus' hand is in the Father's hand. You can't even get at Jesus' hand to get at you. That's the picture of safety he gives us. And the language includes everything. No person, no sin, no circumstance, no enemy, not even time itself can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. Jesus teaches us that salvation is completely of God. From beginning to end. It is God's grace. All we can do is receive the salvation that Jesus has earned and gives to us freely. And knowing that is comforting. It means we don't have to do in order to be loved by Jesus. It means we are forever safe in Jesus. It means that we can't mess this up. Jesus has us securely in his hand. And that is the safest place to be.